guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. And on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the minds of everyone else in the real estate and property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to get control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are on episode 21. And this week, I'm going to do a live Q&A. And... Um, it's um, it's I got a couple of questions and I thought it would be useful. But last week I did episode 20, which was cognitive bias. And I am curious to know if you guys found that useful. So if you did, please let me know. Please let me know if you'd like to hear some more and uh, reach out to me using the uh, Facebook group behind the facade community. And um, just to put you in the picture on where that is at the moment, we are currently at about 220 members and uh, it's constantly filling up with members uh, who get to ask these questions and um, once a week I come back and answer various questions. So it's Friday uh, the 18th of September and it's been a super busy week. I've been back in week in work after a couple of weeks off following the birth of my baby son Dominic and so I can't believe already three weeks old and um, so and we're also waiting here we are in Dublin waiting for news as to whether or not there's going to be a COVID-19 kind of additional measures tonight and so we're all kind of on a bit of uh, on edge waiting to see what exactly happens if you have been listening to my podcast for the last couple of weeks and we you know we're at level 20 at this stage which one has been your favorite I'm curious to know if there's a particular type that you like and how I could improve and maybe get um, more stuff out to you guys that you enjoy. Today, oh yeah, I just well, I thought I would actually give a quick shout out to those of you who've been good enough to actually leave a review in uh, Apple Podcasts. And um, there's been quite a few of you lately, so I'm really grateful to those guys. So from the US, Devon The Real. Here in Ireland, Ben Duffy. Then quite a few people from the UK, Ruben Salva, Philip Ryan, Brendan Quinn, and then some names that are very hard to pronounce, uh, Stinka. And then uh, we've got somebody in Ireland who goes by the name Achunes. So it's like a sneeze, Achu. And we have Very Annoyed Ireland as well, who left a very nice comment. So it's it, your handle does not match the, the quality of your comment that you left. We have in the USA again, we have Broker Blom. We have uh, what looks like Jassop in the UK. We have Robert Nwit. In Ireland, we have Seb Bates in Dubai and Stephanie Taylor in the UK. So guys, thanks so much. If any of you guys have any specific questions or topics you'd like me to cover, I am all ears, particularly to, to you guys, since you've gone to the trouble of leaving a review. And I do know that this week I've spent a bit of time with some of those people already. So sincere thanks to you all. And it does make a big difference to the podcast because I can tell you that we shot up in the ranks today to number 12 in the business podcast category. And number 12 is pretty high up there. Uh, I mean, it's up there with various guys that I listen to on a regular basis. It seems lately that Tim Ferriss is at number one constantly. So we'll see if we can shift him off the top spot for even a day it would be good. So if you guys can leave comments uh, or review, five star review, actually write down a comment or a review would be great and really helps get the discovery and the algorithm that um, sends these out to everybody. It's a great way to do that. So what are we going to get into now? Um, oh, yeah, just a little uh, speaking of the people who left a review, I actually was in contact with Devon 
who's in the US and he's been looking at a commercial deal. And I just wanted to kind of commend him on, we were chatting about some of the strategies that he's done. And what he has actually done is he's been looking at a particular area that is going through a bit of gentrification at the moment in Ohio. And he actually was going door to door, knocking on doors, introducing himself as an investor who was looking at buying next door. And what exactly would they uh, would they think that there would be you know, valuable in that area? What is missing in the area? And he came to the conclusion after speaking to lots of different people that groceries were not being, there was no grocery store in the immediate area and that pretty much everyone was crying out for it. So it just shows what you can do when you actually go knocking door to door. You can actually find out so much information. Now, it may not be obvious to you if you're not living in the area, but if you're arriving in, the best thing to do is to speak to the neighbors and the local guys and they will quickly tell you what would work in that area. And if you build up enough, if you speak to enough of them, you'll actually build up a fairly good idea of what would work. And then, you know, we were talking about his next next actionable step. And that's the best way to break the project. A project, you know, a big project can be a bit overwhelming. So it's always break down into small next actionable steps. And that's a great way. And Devin is pressing on with that. I'm quite excited to hear more on Devin's um, experience and what he's what he's doing. We were talking about funding strategies and he's going to go and start talking to some people about that. So I am um, going to continue to f- you know, follow up uh, with Devin and find out how he's getting on. And it got me thinking about there is various people who are quest- sending me in questions on a regular basis. And I thought perhaps some of you would be interested in joining some kind of a mastermind where we do like a weekly Zoom meeting or something. And this would be something where I I give, you know, a whole hour of my time to various people and they submit questions and we kind of actually have one to one. I can't, you know, it's hard to scale this. Otherwise, it's very hard for me to answer everybody's questions because I'm actually getting quite a lot of them lately. And so I'm thinking if we did like a once a week, hour long Zoom call and everybody who wants to be in on that gets in on it and you, you know, we, we go and answer as many questions as we can. So if you're interested in that as a concept, please go into my website, gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go and sign up for the newsletter or the email list. And if you do that, I will be issuing details of a future mastermind group and that will only go out via the people the, to the people that are on the email list. So if you're hearing this now and you'd like to hear more about that, email is the way to do it. So please go in there, leave your email. All right, let's get into the show. I am I'm just looking at a question first before I go into the first of my own prepared questions is from Besmosis. What do I suggest for people saving for new homes in Kildare? It's um, not sure what exactly the question is. I mean, suggest, I suggest that you, you know, save up and get ready, but I always look at property from a, an ad value point of view. I don't buy, I I tend not to buy something that is just your standard property that, you know, has just been basically built and sold because typically speaking, you're not going to add a huge amount of value. It's just going to go up with the rest of the market. Whereas if you buy, say, something that is what they call a fixer-upper, you can at least add value yourself and maybe you can kind of convert it or you can add an additional bit of space. That's the way I tend to look at it. But of course, nowadays, property is specifically, it's becoming very important that you have the... um, 
we say all of the insulation standards up to the, the top. Um, they call them now, what is it, BE or certificates. I'm not sure what it is in the rest of the world, but here in Ireland, we have a thing called a BE or certificate, and that's an energy rating certificate. And when you get one of those, if you get an A plus rating or whatever, I think there's a certain number of ratings. But I've noticed that the banks will actually give you a, a better and more competitive interest rate if you have that. So that is something to bear in mind. The more sort of insulated and well insulated your property is, the more likely you're going to get bank finance nowadays because uh, houses are starting to become uh, they're going through an obsolescence. You know, if you're buying a house from the 1920s, it is going to have appalling, uh, air, you know, um, insulation standards. It's going to be very cold. It's going to be expensive to heat. Your windows are probably going to be single glazed. All of that stuff means that your bills will be very high electricity bills. And I was recently in uh, some new houses that are being constructed and you, you don't even need to heat these houses. They are literally warmed up by switching on the lights. The, the warmth from the lights and things like that is actually enough to satisfy. All right, so I'm going to get into the question that was left, which I found particularly could be particularly useful for all of our listeners. And that is from Jennifer, who has money to invest and wants to know what is the best way to invest it? Should she do it personally or through a company? And she was saying that her accountant had warned her that if you do it through a company, your, you know, your cash can be locked away and you can't get it out of the company and stuff. So what were my tips and uh, kind of bit of advice on that? So first of all, great question, Jenny. I think it is important to think this thing through in a very careful way. It all depends really on what it is you're trying to achieve. First of all, obviously, setting up a company usually the the benefit of setting up a company is that you are going to end up with limited liability protection and by that i mean say for example i can give loads of examples of things that i've done in the years and, and if, if you make a mistake or say your builder makes a mistake or you do something that causes say structural damage whatever about structural damage to your own home but if you happen to do something that creates structural damage into the adjoining property of say your neighbor you can find yourself in a whole heap of trouble. And that is something that you have to be very careful about. And so because of that, people set up a company and that gives them limited liability protection, which means that the company is responsible, but that is the end of the, your responsibility. You personally won't be. So if you owned a home and say two or three other investment properties and you did this in your personal name and the adjoining property had this huge crack and it was caused by say your builder next door building uh, foundations and he dug and he and he actually basically damaged the foundations of the adjoining property you could actually find yourself being sued for you know it could be millions potentially depending on the value of the property next door and that subsidence you would be personally liable so now your home and all of your personal assets are on the line for that damage and so now it depends on how much damage is done and how much can be proved but i was i was aware of a motor showroom i used to buy my cars from this particular chap and he had he used to work in this motor showroom and the adjoining site went up for sale and it was built um, a huge big office building was built on it and when they were excavating for this office my friend who was selling the cars was sitting in his office and he noticed a crack in the floor and then the next day he noticed that the crack had gotten wider and the next day it gotten wider and then suddenly he noticed that the lights were starting to sway and 
lo and behold, the guys next door had basically damaged the the foundations of his showroom and they had to move out of the showroom. So not only you're talking about structural damage, but you're now talking about business disruption damage. And so if that had been done personally, it would be, you know, into the millions potentially. But it was done through a company and obviously this company had insurance and stuff, so they were safe enough. But it's something that you just have to bear in mind. It's the liability of the company or your personal liability is something that you have to bear in mind. And um, the next thing is the protection from bank debt. And this is something that I've learned the painful lessons of. And that is that if you do something in your personal name versus doing it in a company and you borrow a whole load of money, um, you can find that, say, the project doesn't work out or the economy tanks like it has with COVID-19 or whatever. If you're suddenly in the middle of this thing and you've got a lot of debt, if you've done it in your personal name, the banks will go after you to recover 100% of that debt. Whereas if you have a company, the company is liable for that amount of money, but they can't go after you outside of the company. Unless, of course, you gave personal guarantees. And I do strongly recommend that you do not give personal guarantees. I did that in the past and I paid the price. And you're still on the hook after your company has been wiped out. If you've given a personal guarantee, even though you used a company, you can find that they're still coming after you. Whereas there's a thing called non-recourse debt, and that is where you are putting a certain amount of money into the deal and you know, you're borrowing a, certain, borrowing a certain amount from the bank and they will not have recourse to you after that. So that is something. So say you're buying something for a million, say uh, we'll use a million as a round figure. You'll probably have to put up about 250,000 yourself and you'll be borrowing 750. If you do that through a company and uh, the company, say the company gets into financial difficulty, you could have a situation where the bank go after the company. The company get, might get wiped out, but they won't go after you for all of your assets. Um, you will lose your 250, obviously, but at least they can't go after you for more. And that is that can be saved in their personal capacity if you're able to get non-recourse. But just be very careful with that. And obviously, the name of the game here is to have good solicitors and good advisors, good lawyers and whatever. Now, some of the disadvantages of a company are tax disadvantages. And there's very, very real disadvantages to having something in a company. I have done both in the past and I know the, the, the pros and cons of both. And this is where you have to be very clear in what you're trying to achieve at the outset, because that will guide you in a very, very much. So say, for example, a company, it makes a nice big profit. So you've made, say, let's just use round figures. Say you've made 100,000 on a property deal and your company now has that 100,000 in it. If the company will have to pay tax, so company's going to pay a tax um, on that 100,000 it made. Now, say you want to go and take that money out yourself. You are also going to have to pay tax on the money that has come out to you. So it's like a double tax hit. And that is one of the big disadvantages of a company for this kind of thing. Now, before you start out, if you think really, really carefully about what you're going to do, you can structure it into a way that is going to be most advantageous. So whenever you're getting into a deal, and I'm talking about before you've even completed the transaction, you really do need to think through whether you want to sell this at the end and make a profit, whether you want to hold it long term as an investment asset, or whether you want to flip it. And by that, I mean, 
don't even complete on the sale. You're looking to basically sell on the contract to somebody. So you put a deposit down and then before the property actually is ready to buy, you're selling your position, you're, you're, you're selling your, your place in the line, we'll say, and you're actually selling your contract, your right to buy that property to somebody else. So you don't need to come up with all the money. Now, flips are dangerous and there's various people who try to prevent that from being done. Um, but that is something now, once you know which one of those you want to do, you can basically set up the tax strategy to suit that. For example, um, I bought a property, uh, a bank property many years ago, and I intended to buy that property um, do it up, turn it into, say, a, a commercial center that would have a shop and maybe a doctor on the first floor or something like that. And halfway, you know, I had only just built, bought the building and I was talking to architects about the design and somebody came along and made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And I just said, geez, OK, I'm going to take it. So that was a strategy that actually changed in the middle of it. And because I wasn't expecting that outcome, I didn't prepare for it. And there was this big VAT bill that had to be paid. And it actually cost an additional 700,000 in VAT because of the structure of the way the deal was done. Now, that wasn't paid by, by me. It was actually paid by the person who was or the company that was buying the property. But if they were able to afford this extra 700,000, then they could have actually paid that to me as well. And so that 700,000 disappeared off to the tax man. And I kind of missed out on that. And had I known at the outset that this was a possibility, I could have saved potentially 700,000. Now, as it turns out, that was a very, very good deal and I did very well out of that. So I wasn't crying, but definitely 700,000 is a lot to leave on the table. Example number two is actually, it's a great example because I used all of the different um, methods that I'm talking about. I was, I bought a house in a part of the country that has big, big uh, spacious houses and this was an old house sort of built in the 1900s with or 1901 or something like that and it had about one and a half acres of land around it and so what we actually did was we got a we, we basically divided up the site and we what we wanted to do was keep the original old house on about we'll say a half an acre and then we wanted to build in the acre at the back and possibly slightly more building at the back. And the idea was that we were going to build four brand new houses in the rear garden of this old house. And we were going to sell off the old house with half an acre. And we were going to sell each of these four houses. But what we did was we actually spoke to accountant and tax advisor and, and our lawyer or solicitor. And we actually figured out that here's all of the things we want to do. First of all, we intend just to sell the old house. Uh, at the end of this project. That's all we intend to do. So there was no need to put that into a company. And so what we did is we created a partnership, 50-50, myself and my partner, my business partner, and the property was bought by that partnership. And we did this before we actually completed on the deal so that when the solicitor was actually drawing up the, the contract, it wasn't just one contract. It was actually multiple contracts. It was one actually had the plot of land that we were going to be selling the old house on and that was in the name of the partnership the second thing that we did was we created the we we had the four houses the this the individual houses that we were going to build and sell we actually subdivided the lots so that we actually knew exactly where each house was going to go and that was divvied up on the plan 
And what we decided to do was that the company was going to build two of those houses and sell them. And then myself and my business partner were both going to end up with one house each. And so what we actually did is right there at the very beginning, when the deal was in the, the process of being completed, we actually divvied up his site so he would have a certain amount of land for his house to be built on. I would have a certain amount of land for my house to be built on and then the company would have the balance. And the benefit of that was that each piece of we, we got the land right at the very outset of the project at its original purchase price cost. And it was very easy to demonstrate that this was the original price that we paid and we had it valued and all that. Um, if we had built these, if we had just left it all in one lump and we had built these four houses and the company had done that, myself and my business partner, we would have had to have bought the houses from the company and we would have had to pay the company. So the company, we would have to pay tax inside the company on the profit that it made from selling us these properties. And all of this kind of thing would be, um, just would have meant that there's all these small little sort of bites of tax being taken away all of the time. Now, by doing it into our personal names, what it meant was the company built the house on land that we owned. So we had to pay the company for the construction cost, but the land was ours. And so it, we were effectively paying the company to build a house for us, but not for the land that it was sitting on. And when we sold those houses, when I sold my house, I actually sold it with the benefit of living in it for a couple of years. And so I didn't have to pay any tax at all on the profit, not a penny. And that is one of the advantages of doing this in your personal name is that when you're when it's your own personal home, you don't actually have to pay tax on it. Now, depending on where you are listening to this podcast, you're going to find that perhaps it is not possible to do that in your jurisdiction. I don't. So I'm not going to give advice to people outside of, say, Ireland on how they structure it. But definitely the moral of the story here is to go and speak to your uh, advisors. And the best advisors to have are a good accountant, a good lawyer or legal advisor or whatever, and a good broker who you can trust um, somebody that you've built up a relationship with, not, you don't want a shark who's kind of like coming along, just sold you the properties onto the next deal. You need to build up a bit of a relationship with these people. Anyway, the, the benefit obviously of keeping, of, of building the, the two houses inside the company was that we were going to sell these houses afterwards and there was a certain amount of VAT that we could recover on the construction of the houses and all of that. So Ultimately, it was quite a complicated legal structure and we did have to pay quite a bit more for the legal advice than we would have if it had just been a straightforward deal. But in the end, it actually worked out really, really well and we saved a huge amount of tax by structuring it that way. And remember, it was done before the actual deal was completed. So the land, we had agreed to buy the land, but this was all done before we actually took ownership of the site itself. And so the tax advantage was right there at the very beginning. So look at this stuff at the very start. Do not wait until the, the land is yours and then say, right, what are we going to do? Because at that stage, it's too late and you, you can't actually turn back the clock. And if we had done that, we would have had to you know, pay profits inside the company and, uh, and it would have been a bit of a disaster. What else? Oh, yeah. Well, let's get into the advantages of doing it personally. Obviously, th there is that personal tax advantage. Your money is not locked away. Um, inside the company and you don't get that double tax hit but there are ways to structure it and over the years I've done that I'll explain one of the ways that we did that over the years is 
you actually create your company and then you create a loan, a shareholder loan from yourself into the company. And one of the ways to do this, it's actually a very tax advantageous way of doing it. And say, for example, you needed to do something of, and say you needed to put a million into the company in order for this to be possible. You would actually go and set up the company for maybe a hundred euro or a hundred dollars, whatever it is, hundred pounds. And you would then loan the million in. And by doing that now, obviously we're assuming, you know, depending on where you're at in this whole game, that might be 20 grand, it might be 100 grand, it might be 500 grand, whatever. You would be lending your money in and then you are actually now, you're, you, the company owes you back that amount of money. But the company is able to use that money to go out, do the deal. It's able to maybe borrow additional money from the banks and whatever. And... What you, you can even charge a coupon on that or you can actually, by, by that I mean you can actually get interest on your loan that you have given in. So the company owes you a certain amount of interest that you can accumulate. And the good thing then is that when the, when the assuming the project has been successful and say your million has turned into two million, you can now extract your million out completely tax-free. I mean, it is a loan. So all you're doing is getting back the original money that you put in. And what you have now is you have the value created in the company of, say, another million. And now, depending on where you are taxed, here in Ireland is actually quite an advantageous tax regime around corporate tax. So we only pay 12.5% tax. So that is very advantageous. And it means that you're only paying 12.5%. If you had made a million or, say, a million profit in your personal name, you might be paying 50% tax. You might be paying 33% capital gains tax. There's all sorts of stuff. It's very important that you get your advisors to sort of look this, look at this right from the outset and explore all the different avenues. And I've seen friends of mine who are very active doing this kind of stuff and they would be onto their sort of their lawyer and their accountant on an almost daily basis for the first couple of weeks that they're looking at this project because they're looking at every single angle. They're sort of asking, okay, what if we do this? And the guy has to go and get some advice on that. What if, what about the VAT implications? What if we do that? And uh, I mean, you've got to be really careful to look at every single thing so that you don't, because, you know, you might be trying to make a 20% return on this deal. And if you go and end up with say a 30% tax take, then your 20% return is now down to about, you know, 15% or 12%. So, but if you can actually mitigate all of your tax, then you get to keep every single bit of that 20%. And that'll be an advantage, an advantage in the view of your investors and all that. Another thing to bear in mind is investors. If you are bringing investors in, you have to be cognizant of the way that they will want to structure this. Those guys will not want to have any kind of personal liability. And so definitely some kind of a company or a limited partnership is the way to go about it. Because if you if anybody has personal liability, they're probably going to walk away from your project. The, the, the main thing is to speak to them good and early and make sure that you have thought this thing through. So you're not going to look back and regret and find that you've left a couple of hundred thousand in tax on the table. <laughs> Next question is from Hugo, who was curious to know if there is a minimum investment that I thought was re reasonable for doing a joint venture or a JV with someone. And it's um, uh, it, this is probably as a result of one of my previous podcasts where I talked about 
do, you know, if you're going to go out there and do a deal and you only have, say, a small amount of money, say, say you can only raise 30 or 40,000 and you're, you're trying to do a bigger property deal. Well, then why don't you join forces with somebody who has complementary skills and that person and you can bandy together and you can actually end up going out and doing a bigger deal. And probably there'd be more value in the two of you doing that than doing it on your own. Uh, so the advantage, obviously, is it depends really on those resources and stuff. At the end of the day, what's, mo what's most important is the quality of the deal. And I had a great conversation with Joe who dropped in here. D Joe is um, part of the community and um, quite a successful investor in his own right. And we were talking about various deals. And Joe has been picking up a lot of real bargains, but they're kind of smaller size deals. He's been picking up houses for 250 grand and things like that. And, you know, you don't find too many deals like that in different parts of the country, but he's buying them and he's getting about a 15 to 17 percent uh, return on it, which is very, very solid return. And, you know, but the, the problem is with the scale that we're talking about, you're talking about 250 grand. You'd have to buy 10 of those to equate to a 2.5 million deal. And there is there's as much work in closing a 2.5 million deal as there is in closing one 250,000 deal. So you'll obviously, you know, spend a lot more on legal and you'll spend it all, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, if the 2.5 million deal is producing a 3% return and your 250 grand deal is producing a 15% return, well, then it makes a lot of sense to just keep on doing what you're doing. I wouldn't necessarily go after the big prestigious projects unless you have made enough that this is particularly of interest to you. The only advantage of going for the prestigious projects is that they can be easier to sell. You can find that there are people out there who want to buy it and they're not particularly fussed um, about, you know, buying, you know, guys with money with deep pockets will do that kind of thing. OK, we're going to deal with some questions that I've received from our listeners. So. What are my thoughts on the residential property market in 2021? I would say this is actually very important. I've been thinking about this a lot and I do think what you're seeing lately is kind of defying logic. And I, I think, but I think there's a good explanation for it. And depending on where you're listening in from, I know there's people listening from the US, from the UK and here in Ireland and Australia as well. And whatever part of the world you're listening, this may differ, but certainly, COVID-19 has created this massive economic dip and a lot of people have gone bankrupt uh, or not bankrupt, but a lot of people have obviously lost their jobs. A lot of people have lost jobs, been furloughed, all of this. And those people are currently on support payments from the government or they got various amounts of money from, say, in the US, there was these payments that were paid out. And then there was things like evictions were banned and all of this stuff, that is all creating kind of an artificial support for the property market. You've got people like normally landlords, as soon as somebody stops paying rent, they start to get worried. Obviously, they have bank loans to pay and things like that. So as soon as somebody stops paying rent, the landlord is on notice. Uh oh, we have a bit of a problem here. And, you know, nobody wants to give anybody a hard time with COVID and all that. But if you've got a bank that's coming after you, then it's, you know, it's eat or be eaten. And so that is kind of what's going to happen. Now, if you've been getting these support payments and you're able to make your rent, well, then great. You've staved off your landlord coming after you. 
But as we get further into this crisis, I am seeing people that are starting to realize that, you know, a vaccine is not coming around no matter what people are promising about, you know, before this election uh, in November, there'll be, you know, let's just be realistic. Nobody who has any kind of sort of sense is going to take a vaccine prior to it being fully tested and vetted. There's plenty of, you know, uh, examples in history of people taking vaccines before they were fully tested and ending up with these terrible, you know, deformation, like children that are born with terrible deformations. And you've got people that suddenly develop really bad you know, kidney infections and all of this stuff can actually damage your health permanently. And so I don't think anyone is going to be rushing in. And certainly nobody with a bit of sense is going to be rushing into getting a vaccine. So let us assume then that the vaccine takes six or 12 months to be uh, properly vetted. So this time next year, you might be hearing that, okay, the vaccine is finally starting to be distributed. It takes months and months to get millions of vaccine, you know, um, doses out to the population. And not just that, to get them into the hands of doctors so that doctors can actually administer it. And, you know, so when you add up all of this, I think at the very least, I am expecting us to be here one year from now in this same kind of situation, perhaps not in a lockdown, but with the economy not firing on all cylinders. Now, that being the case, the property market will suffer from a bit of a downturn. There's no question about it, in my view. Now, some places have got a supply and demand issue. Uh, in Ireland here, we do have quite an issue with supply and demand. So that could definitely prop up prices. But I think there's going to be a lot of distressed people on the market. There's going to be a lot of properties that are being sold by people that just have to get rid of them because they can't afford. You know, anybody who bought an investment property over the last while and is sitting on, say, a commercial property that has a cafe or a restaurant or something, those guys just cannot afford the rent that they could before because with social distancing, they're getting, you know, a trickle of customers in every day as opposed to being packed all of those guys are going to be coming back to their landlord saying, I cannot afford this rent. You've got to drop the rent or we're going to have to move out. That conversation going on across the board, I think it is going to impact the real estate market. But there is always a lag. And that is something that I've spoken about before. The lag in the real estate market is usually you know, up to a year or so. Back in 2008, the crash came, the global financial crisis came along. And everyone could see the stock market crashed and all this. But it was actually probably another year or two before you started to see really, really distressed property going on the market. And uh, it was around about 2012, I think, that the Irish market was at its absolute rock bottom. And I think property, you know, property just could not be given away. And along came all of these big, huge funds from uh, the US and stuff, and they started buying up two billion dollar portfolios of property so that is the kind of thing that took three years back in 2008 and so i do not think covid is going to be that different insofar as i do think there's going to be a lag and so 2021 could be a time to hold off to actually buy property but it, you know it's like a crystal ball i don't want to be the one to sort of say yes go and do that and then next year you're kind of saying god you know the prices have gone up since then but certainly in my view, the market will continue to kind of suffer. And so it could actually be that you're able to pick up better prices next year. Another question, what yield would I be looking for 
um, to make a profit after tax in my own name? I mean, that's a difficult question. It all depends. You know, if you're the yield, the yield is usually what you get on your um, on, you know, if you're going to hold on to a property long term, um, you're going to be getting a yield on an annual basis. So you bought something for a million and you're getting 100,000 a year in rent. That's 10 percent yield, more or less. Your tax is not included in that. So that's your 10 percent. If you've got to pay tax on that afterwards, that's not actually calculated typically. So your real yield is about 5 percent, but that does not come into the calculation. If you're selling the property, um, you're going to have to pay in a, here in Ireland anyway, you're going to have to pay about 30. What is it? 35 percent capital gains tax. And that comes out. Now, I know in the US, you're actually able to, if you're able to reinvest the money within a period of time, you can actually save all of the tax and just reinvest it. So there's all sorts of advantages to do that. And so it really depends where you're looking at this from as to what you do. But your yield, it's really down to, I mean, at the moment, if you put your money in the bank, you are looking at a negative interest rate. So you're actually having to pay to put your money in the bank. And so like a 2% yield is actually pretty good in that, you know, in that scheme of things. Um, what you've got to look at is the risk reward. If you expect to buy something and, you know, there's a risk that you could lose all of your money, of course, you're going to expect a major return for that type of risk. But if you're buying something like government bonds and the government bonds, you know, they're absolutely guaranteed. You're never going to lose any money on that then your yield is going to be, you know, 1% or something like that. So it's all about risk reward. And that is something that um, I think I might do a, a special kind of a, a mastermind session on that. So anyone who's interested, I mentioned before the mastermind, uh, sign up to the newsletter. If you go through to gavinjgallaher.com forward slash go, you'll get through to the newsletter sign up page. And when you're in there, I will be submitting any kind of idea around, say, a mastermind webinar or something that explains yields and all of that stuff. How is business now here in East Point? It's kind of a little bit difficult. We've got um, a lot of people out of work and out of the office and stuff like that. So it's a bit um, it's a bit of a struggle at the moment. And it's I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what does the future of office look like? I do think people are going to come back, but I think it's going to be a difficult couple of months. And I've got a, a question here from someone. I've just turned 14 and he's earned 10,000 over the summer. What would be, what be, would it be advisable to rent? No, definitely not. If you're 14, <laughs> stay home and get the free uh, dinner and all that kind of stuff from your parents. Go and invest your money wisely, though. Don't, don't go and blow it. And um, probably the best thing is to put it into one of these kind of investment funds like stock market funds. Those can be, you got to check those out though. They're very, very, you know, the, the, some of them, there's a huge amount of hidden fees. There's others where there's no fees or where there's very low fees. And so you got to really be careful about how you invest your money in that regard. Uh, but at 14, it's definitely, it's pretty impressive that you're able to put away 10 grand at the age of 14. So that's it for episode number 21 of Behind the Facade. Please check out the show notes for any links to thing, websites and stuff mentioned today. Thanks so much for listening. My number one ask of you guys is to leave a review. And as you'll know from today's episode, I like the people who leave a review and I will always be happy to kind of help with any questions you guys have. So by all means, leave a review and uh, I will owe you one. 
Also consider uh, checking out the Facebook community and we're actually broadcasting live to that at the moment. The Facebook community is called Behind the Facade Community and it's the best way to contact me directly if you have any questions or if you want me to cover a topic on future episodes. And lastly, um, yeah, go and check out the website. Go and check out the um, the, the, the newsletter. I don't issue regular newsletters if you're worried about getting spam all the time. I haven't yet. I have actually yet to issue one newsletter, but I do keep your email in case I want to write to you guys about something in particular. And so lastly, check out my YouTube channel, PropTech TV, all one word, where I post a lot of these videos afterwards and um, and various other bits of pieces and whatever. So hope you have a great week, guys, and talk to you all very soon. Mm-hmm.